people um, yeah, yeah the the republican candidate in this particular race um you know said that i was for for free stuff and higher taxes and it's not far from the truth i think that public transportation education housing healthcare should be human rights right and that necessitates them being uh, extremely affordable, if yes, not free, absolutely. Um, which also necessitates the wealthiest individuals and corporations paying their fair share. Yes, which they absolutely can. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 like not that difficult. I think for a lot of us, it's like not that difficult. Like the solutions are there. However, right. it's a matter of how how does one convince other people who might just be unaware. And I think part of that has to do with the miseducation in this country. Right. And, and so for, brainwashing. you know, for a public bank, um, it would actually not serve as a direct kind of uh, individuals, you know, regular run of the mill bank. I wouldn't be able to really open an account mm -hmm. at the future public bank of San Francisco. Um, this would be an infrastructure bank that largely supports credit unions, smaller banks that are already plugged into the local economy. Great. And it would just pile on the capital that they need to expand. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So what's next in the steps for it to become more official or to be created? Well, we need the financials and the kind of business plan, um, shareholder structure, governance structures. Mm -hmm. um, and we need a lot of studying because we need to get it right. Um, you know, with especially with uh, concerns about the politicization of the bank operations, we don't want this bank to be politicized or another place for politicians to enact corrupt behavior. Yes. And decisions. Yes. Um, and so we really want it insulated from the government. Um, so on the day to day, it's going to be bankers running it. And we have to figure out the relationship, you know, how to balance that kind of accountability and transparency with independence mm -hmm. um that'll be a question for hopefully a task force another task force yes um coming up this year to look at different governance models um, that strike that correct balance and that are able to put forward business plans and business models that actually reflect our regional economy's needs yeah wow that's yeah, yeah, so the ordinance is being considered right now and Great. hopefully being passed next month. Excellent. Well, hopefully for the folks out there who already have your ballots to like, yeah. And there's a proposition that's linked to that? No, this, so or? this is an ordinance in front of the Board of Supervisors. Oh, I see. Okay. Not going to the ballot. Got it. And so can San Francisco residents go into the Board of Supervisors and voice their support when they have it open to comments? Yeah. Um, it's, it's easiest to follow the Public Bank Coalition on uh, social media. Okay. Uh, we have events you know we put up events whenever we mobilize Great. to city hall and city hall is where we need to go to to have our voices heard excellent yeah. well hopefully with the new board of supervisors that's hopefully leaning seems like it's leaning a little bit more left yeah hopefully yeah um so far we have a veto proof majority of the mm -hmm. board of supervisors meaning we have eight of 11 supervisors co-sponsoring that's great um and so that's not even having gone to a vote yet it still needs to go to the rules committee and mm -hmm. then it'll go on back to the board of supervisors twice more. Um, okay. but we're confident that this will be passed. Excellent. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's nice to have something to, to hope for. And then also just to recognize that change can happen by putting the energy and effort in. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I was hoping you could also, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about, um, 
the the pipeline i know or yeah. i know one unfortunately one of the many ones but the you're spending time for the dakota access pipeline yeah in terms of fighting against it yeah so i had just graduated from stanford in 2016 when <laughs> all of this was going down yes it begun in earnest in 2014 when um tribal members at standing rock uh found out that they had this pipeline that was about to be built uh within the next few years um they didn't there wasn't any meaningful process of consent yep um yeah the the standard internationally um well sorry not internationally but for the u.s uh in with respect to infrastructure projects on indigenous lands the standard is of consultation which is defined as an exchange of information Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with consent consent yeah which is a yes or no right so this pipeline company you know they say that they (sighs) had consulted the tribe and Mm -hmm. all this means is that they exchanged information with them um fast forward to 2016 they had begun uh you know they had been preparing to build this pipeline through the missouri river which is the only source of fresh water for The Standing Rock Tribe for the Cheyenne River Tribe, of which I'm a descendant. My mm-hmm. grandfather grew up on Cheyenne River. Um, and millions of people downstream, not even in indigenous people, um, white people in North and South Dakota, too. Um, my particular family history is is one of the many stories of, you know, broken promises. My grandmother grew up on the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, uh, not far from... The pipeline site but uh our tribe basically tribal council decided to open up our reservation to oil drilling and this is a very controversial decision in indian country broadly but also just on the fort berthold reservation Mm -hmm. um but her her history and her community's history um you know goes back to the garrison dam and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers deciding to build a series of dams in the middle of the country, uh, in the Midwest, along the Missouri River, um, basically to irrigate for white farmers. And who got the short end of the stick was the indigenous people mm-hmm. um, all along. So Lakota people, Dakota people, Hidatsa people, which is my grandmother, and so many others, so many other tribes. My grandmother and her community were were flooded and they were promised compensation um but none none of that came um you know in the end there's still some people there but the community has not been the same and Mm -hmm. my family actually had had been had moved to phoenix and was moving all around to la as well um so when i heard in 2016 that the army corps of engineers who's this, the same agency responsible for my grandmother's displacement, was also going to be in charge of this pipeline. I thought, yeah. that that's not going to go well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, on as we saw on Facebook live streams and Twitter, um, we had a militarized law enforcement, not unlike the militarized law enforcement of Ferguson, mm-hmm. cracking down on unarmed water protectors, yeah. both indigenous and non-indigenous. And for me, I had been, you know, just looking at police violence here in the Bay Area yeah. from Oscar Grant to others. And then then that issue became real for me. Um, and I wanted to find out a way that we could just cut off 
I wanted to know who was who was monetarily benefiting from this kind of violence. Yeah. Um, of course, the pipeline company is, but who is putting up the capital? Who has the flow of money uh, from you know large pockets to this particular pipeline? And of course, it was Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, there had been a burgeoning local movement in Seattle led by indigenous people there. And I got in touch with the organizers there who were trying to get their city council to divest. I wanted to do that same thing here. Yes. And so basically just got inspired to do the same thing here in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Uh, We got the board of supervisors after not knowing who was on the board of supervisors, how to (laughs) move local legislation, had never been to city hall. And we got this ordinance, this uh, legislation passed. It's a resolution, Mm -hmm. which is an intention. It's a great first step but it doesn't actually require any action. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, I'm not about symbolic moves. I want the real thing. Yes. So I've been working for the past few years on a public bank. Yeah. That's that's really informative. Thank you for, for sharing that. And it's, there's so much, I think just from following certain sources online, but it's so crucial just to understand exactly not just what happened, but what led up to it. And also of course the history, which has been washed away by so much of, textbooks in this country and right. through dominant culture. Yeah. I mean, Trump's election in November of that year was a done deal for the pipeline. Mm-hmm. We had been holding out for then president Obama to somehow come in and save the day. And, and it was really yeah. tough because he actually had a very unique and, and formed already a relationship with the standing rock tribe uh, he visited Standing Rock. I think it was in 2014. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, and out of all the all the reservations he could have visited, he decided to visit Standing Rock. Uh-huh. And then, you know, a few years later, we're <laughs> we're waiting for him to to say, you know, let's put an injunction on this. Yes. Yes. You know, go back and do the environmental impact statement or whatever. And he did that. But by the time he did that, Trump had been elected. Um, it, it was essentially meaningless. Mm-hmm. And once Trump was in office, on his third day in office, he signed the fast track for not just Apple, but the, the Keystone, Keystone XL yeah. as well. <sighs> yeah. <sighs> I end up sighing a lot because I don't have the words for just so much rage. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's just... <sighs> yeah. Yeah, it's... And again, nothing new in terms of this country where it's just like, it's just a series of these events. Yeah, nothing new. And I, I certainly um, did not experience a, any of the, I was there for a day to just drop off donations. I see. There, are, I have friends who, you know, had struggled with PTSD after yes, being at the camps yeah. for really long, um, having helicopters fly over and blaringly bright lights mm-hmm. uh, run through the night, um, you know. A lot of people were scared about infiltration, which there was, mm. and surveillance and whatever else um, that money could buy yeah. for the pipeline security companies. Yeah. Um, so it was a really um, inspiring but also heartbreaking episode yes. in you know indigenous resistance history. But in the in the beginning of 2017, when we were all, you know realizing that this is the new state of affairs for for our country and that we had you know effectively lost this particular battle um i i just wasn't settling for that being the end of the story yeah and you know in moments like that 
hope is everything. Yes. Um, yeah. It just, it's so easy to, to slip into, you know, the darkness and feel like it's all too much to handle. And there mm-hmm. are certainly people who deserve to rest at that point. Um, but for me, who had not experienced the police violence, yes. I was ready to go. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I decided to do what I do best and follow the money and nerd out on policies and, you know, find out how to move legislation and just read, read, read and research. Yeah. So that's so helpful. And I really appreciate you also. Thank you for sharing that also with the listener, with myself and the listeners, because there is so much to learn and also just to know that it is possible to, to take action in that way. Yeah. Instead of feeling, as you mentioned, like hopeless or that we can't make a difference, but clearly folks can. Yeah. And I've been there too. And that's usually, you know, when I'm in the middle of burnout. But yes. Yeah. That's a sign that you need to rest and, you know, you're not really helpful uh, at that point. You just need to take care of yourself. Absolutely. And then come back when you're ready. Yeah, and exactly. Also, I'm a big fan of the idea of diversity of tactics. Like there are so many things that folks are capable of and can show up for yeah. and everyone there's something that everyone can do at some point yeah exactly there's art there's you know protesting on the front line mm-hmm. there's uh talking in classes and as an educator myself i teach a lot about movements yeah. as well that's great are there any like stories or anything you'd like to share about your experience as an educator well i am a lecturer at sf state in mm-hmm. the college of ethnic studies i teach race women in class was very honored to have been tapped by the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, Lisa Garza, to teach that and, you know, big shoes to fill. Yes. But I've been really just kind of, it's a bit of a foray into my own politicization and and coming into this particular world of resistance and activism and organizing, um, largely inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement and the No Dabble movement, mm-hmm. both of which had a, men- a tremendous solidarity with each other. Yes. Um, even through Standing Rock, even now. Um, so I I feel like, yeah, back here in San Francisco, there is a world of, of crises and a world of reasons to feel like it's all too much, especially when, you know, we have real estate developers and uh, tech companies who seemingly live in another world yeah yeah completely different world i i am now talking to voters on at bus stops and there are plenty of plenty of people who um who are are willing to talk whether they're students at sf state or people on their way to work um whether they're in service industry or tech or, or whatever but there are there are some people Largely with AirPods, who 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 seem to to just live in this world where working class people and people of color don't exist. Mm-hmm. They they can just you can really just be in the city, um, wake up in your you know more than fifteen hundred dollar room, um, get on a shuttle, be shipped to you know the South Bay or or somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And go to work for the entire day, have free meals, free <laughs> whatever, yeah. um, have an amazing, you know, six-figure salary and health benefits, and then come back, have your AirPods in, not talk to a single person. Yes. Yeah. And then do it all again the next day. Right. Um, and, and that's not any one particular's fault. It's just the culture and the economic system and the way that we have placed such a value on 
um, quote unquote innovation and wealth accumulation yes. at the expense of a more equitable society. Yeah. Um, in the classroom, to me, this looks like uh, I really only have a handful of white students. Uh, most, most of my students are students of color. Um, many of them are uh, immigrants. A few of them probably are undocumented um, and have are, are not first language English speakers, but are still incredibly um, engaged in the classroom and the material, you know, race, women in class, race, gender in class are, are issues that we all, we all stew in uh, just being here in San Francisco and in, in 2020. And everyone has a particular experience with it, whether they know it or not. Yes. My my job is just to bring that out and make them aware that um, these social constructs have unfortunately had a lot to do with how a person's, how easy or difficult a person's life is going to be. Yeah. And one can learn, going back to what you were saying about folks kind of living in their own world, I found like I've learned so much from like the more I meet people and the more people I've met, the more my world expands. And just through storytelling and getting to know other people's experiences, the more empathy one has as well, too. Oh, yeah. And if there can be, I think also just with this idea of, I'm of, also of the generation of, I remember what life was like before the internet. And so then all of a sudden to have this like computer in one's hand and to rely on it for information, whether it's for directions or something and how that then takes away from me asking someone else for directions mm -hmm. and how interaction has just kind of changed in a way that becomes, yeah, I guess a lot more individualistic. Oh yeah. Um, that reminds me of a really silly, funny story about, uh, LaDonna Brave Bull Allard. She founded the Sacred Stone Camp, which was the, the founding camp at Standing Rock. And someone was joking me with me. She's an amazing, mentor to me and like an auntie um she is like the matriarch of the standing rock no dapple movement and i think that someone was telling me that she didn't allow anyone to put up signs at sacred stone to mm -hmm. like you know indicate where the kitchen was or the bathrooms were because ah. she really wanted people to talk to each other yes and they and she really encouraged people to know where they were and be familiar with the place and not she didn't want this this culture of just ignoring each other and uh, not being integrated with one's surroundings. Yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's great. Um, I also just wanted to touch on a couple more things. And one is that I personally have been without, I was without, without stable housing for a while in my life. So I appreciate that that's definitely, the housing is a big uh, platform that you have decided to, that you've shared and been really vocal about, like just, in terms of really ensuring that folks have their basic needs met and someone who's experienced it. It's so, I'm really grateful that there are people in positions of power who really understand that and want to make a change of how things are set up. Yeah. I was watching this fascinating, um, talk between these two, I guess, intellectual figures. And one was arguing that it's incumbent on people who want to keep the status quo to defend it. Yes. And the one that had status quo bias was saying, no, it's incumbent on people who want to really radically change the system to make mm. the case. And I was just thinking about how that's the case with housing policy where so, so many people's um, political opinions and just positions on elections seem to be dictated by 
their living situation and and the living situation of people around them. Mm-hmm. So I could I could see you know a world in which I was very comfortable. Yeah, didn't have to worry about rent or healthcare or I don't know fresh food or having a higher education that was affordable. Um, it would be really hard for me to understand why anyone would want to change this system. It's worked out for me. Right, right. Yeah. I worked so hard. And... Yeah, or inherited your wealth <laughs> in some cases. Right, <laughs> and I have it pretty good. It would be hard to understand why why people just couldn't get it together. But, um, you know, I've, I've moved in between different worlds, between being at Stanford, yeah. but also growing up in, you know, a uh, single family, single parent household mm-hmm. um in a low-income neighborhood yeah and just seeing the different worlds um really you know intense intense inequality here in san francisco but um, that was also a shift that i had navigated going from my my tiny low-income neighborhood to a place like stanford yes where it wasn't uncommon for classmates to jet around the world every single weekend but yeah uh i mean i should believe it but i'm also just like (laughs) wow yeah um and then of course graduating i mean i i have always promised myself to not stay in in a stanford bubble Mm -hmm. and i have a really hard time having um be you know putting myself for a job that is only really surrounded around maximizing profit and income yes i just haven't been able to operate like that yeah um and i've been very privileged to have my lecturing job but it's one of those jobs uh you know being a part-time lecturer that doesn't pay enough one Mm -hmm. job's not enough that is um a phrase definitely put forward by a lot of the amazing union workers in the city specifically local two and their fight for their hotel workers yes yeah and um you know the one job not being enough is such a common experience among young people working class people uh people of color and and especially here in this district but um you know uh, i was one of those people that had to take time out of the the housing circus and i i couldn't you know afford rent so Mm -hmm. i slept on friends couches and in my van it was not going to be a long-term thing it was short term Thank goodness. And there are levels to homelessness. Yes. yes. I did not experience the kind of, you know, sleeping on a grate. I have some sort of a safety net with my family and my friends. Mm -hmm. They would, they would never let me go hungry or unsheltered in the elements. Yes. Um, so, you know, uh, that's the situation here in the Bay area. And that's, that's well known unless, you know, you live in the kind of world where you and your friends are housing secure and Mm -hmm. have never thought about a situation which you might be sleeping in a van. Um, I also feel like, uh, a lot of people, um, want to, want to think that our housing crisis is one simply of economics where we, if we just build enough, the price of housing and rents will come down. And that's currently uh, the view of the current state senator. Yeah. It's not my view. Nor mine. <laughs> nor many other people. Just have to say it out loud. <laughs> um, across California, we have a surplus of 300,000 units yep. above, above moderate income. Yeah. Uh, the shortage, you know, let's say there is the, the few million unit shortage. It's most acutely felt at the extremely low income, very low income, low income, and moderate income levels. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it gets worse as you go down yes. that income scale. Um, and so, you know, we have to, we have to come to some understanding about how we got here. And I have a different view of how we got here. I think that if we had rent control, if we had tenant protections, mm -hmm. if we had, you know, if the government had intervened to take units off the speculative market, yes, we would be in a much different situation mm -hmm. than we are now. Um, for every two units of housing that we build, we lose one yeah. in the city. Huh. So we need to talk about preservation because we have been bleeding and we've been bleeding for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, the, the interests, you know, unfortunately are there in Sacramento and they are making the rounds of, of the halls, um, pushing for legislation that largely maximizes profit. It doesn't build for need. It builds for profit. And so I'm about building for need. Yes. Yeah. And it also makes me think about Moms for Housing and how many other activists who have, you know, there's like so many vacant homes, you know, you know as you mentioned. And then also I saw on your website, I'm just going to, sorry if I'm talking really quickly, um, just to, to repeal Costa Hawkins and also the Ellis Act. And I know so many folks who have been evicted for, you know, no fault of their own. Right. So here in, in California, we have the Ellis Act, which upholds this really, you know, gross system of landlords being able to evict an entire building of tenants for no cause. Um, that's why we want the, the other side of that, which is just cause, Yes, you know, only if you break your lease and only if you have these egregious violations right, of your, right. your agreement with your landlord, should you be evicted? Um, Ellis act has been largely responsible for so many different buildings being flipped mm -hmm. or entirely demolished and built into luxury condos uh, here in District 11 and the broader Bay Area. Um, but we also have this other act in the California code that is the Costa-Hawkins Act, mm -hmm. and that severely restricts and limits municipalities' ability to implement or expand rent control. Here in San Francisco, we have probably some of the best rent control in the state, mm -hmm. but it's still not enough to cover everyone. Um, and I, I think that universal rent control should have happened yesterday yes but it's yeah. not because we have special interests from the real estate lobby yes. who pour millions of dollars every single year into the state legislature races including this one and right now the current state senator is the most real estate backed politician in, in the legislature yeah yeah Ugh. 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 okay so we're we're um Coming towards like the end of the half hour or so. So I also wanted just to put out the word for folks. If folks would like to volunteer for your campaign and or donate and or get the word out, what are the best ways for folks to do that? Yeah. So Jackie for Senate.com, J-A-C-K-I-E-F-O-R, mm -hmm. Senate.com uh, is the best place to go. You can hit the get involved tab and sign up to volunteer. And also there's a check mark for if you want to host a fundraiser. Um, checks can be there. The information is there on the website, but you also need to include your employer to make sure that you're not a real estate speculator. <laughs> Got it. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, uh, we're, we have an amazing volunteer base Excellent. so far just being, I don't know, less than 70 days out since I announced. Yeah. Um, yeah. ballots have already dropped yeah. on Monday. Yeah. So we are, we are racing to, to let everyone know in the city that, I'm running and that there's a different option that we don't have to compromise on our values just because times are tough. Yes. Um, and that, you know, if people rise up and do the work, we might be able to do something.
Absolutely. That's very inspiring. Thank <laughs> you for sharing that. Yeah. And also, I um, also follow you on Twitter. So also, if folks want to follow you on Twitter, um, what's your Twitter yeah. handle? At J-A-C-K-I-E-F-I-E-L-D-E-R underscore. Yeah. Jackie Fielder underscore. Got it. Great. Instagram so, as well. Yeah. I found like a lot of information from that as well. So thanks yeah. for sharing that. Do you have anything else you'd like to share or say before we um, wrap up? You know, this is a, a movement for educators, for students, for unhoused people, for renters. I've been endorsed by the California Teachers Association, yeah. San Francisco Tenants Union, hopefully a lot more soon, Excellent. as well as our revolution. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited. And it's it's a if you want to pick up a sign. We yes. Also, yeah. I was going to say we should put one up, yeah, we we can should. Put one up here. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, we need all the help that we can get. Excellent. Cool. Well, thanks so much for being here and please vote for Jackie on March 3rd and or before if you've already received your ballots. <laughs> Thank you. Great. Thanks for being here. We're going to take a bit of a music break and then we'll be back again uh, after this. Stay tuned. Valentine's Day. Um, 
do something nice. That's me trying to interrupt the ad. Please stay tuned. We'll be playing some more music. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Weekly Review on Mutiny Radio. If you're interested in listening to previous programs, their archive is up on the Mutiny Radio website, and you can find that at mutinyradio.fm. If you click on the podcast tab, you can go into the archive and check out more episodes there. Welcome back to the Weekly Review. We are playing 
songs from We're New Again, the new album. It's a, called A Remagin. We're, excuse me. We're, let me slow down a moment. <clears throat> We're New Again, A Reimagining by Micaiah McRaven. And, whew, yeah, we'll play a few more tracks and then we'll get back with some more news stories for you. Stay tuned. Piano need a day off like I do. I am a piano player. I, I doubt it all shit because I'm saying, hey, I'm 60 years, you got <laughs> time. <laughs> I mean, I, I play piano. I write, and then I, and then I play what I wrote or whatever. I play, and then I write what I play, you know? <laughs> we jump back away. But it all works into that. And welcome back to the Weekly Review. This is Roman here. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. <sighs> there are a couple news stories, and if you want to follow, I end up retweeting a lot of news stories. You can follow me on Twitter at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. <clears throat> Excuse me. So... I also like to provide action items for folks because I mentioned earlier, lots of ways folks can show up and participate. So this is a uh, protest that's happening today at Libby Schaff's State of the City Address, which is happening today, which is February 7th, 
Friday, February 7th, uh, 5 p.m. at the Oakland Museum of California on Oak Street. There is uh, Indie Bay, which I really su- support. Yay, follow Indie Bay. You can follow them at Indie Bay, I-N-D-Y-B-A-Y, or go to IndieBay.org, and I'll read a little bit of what they have shared. And this is The Terrible State of Oakland from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. It's a protest uh, the organizer is the United Front Against Displacement. And you can email them at we won't go at riseup.net. They have a phone number listed as well. Uh, and it's going to be in front of the main entrance of the Oakland Museum of California, which is at 1000 Oak Street in Oakland. The United Front Against Displacement and the West Oakland Wood Community Wood Street Community will rally on February 7th at 5 p.m. to condemn the Oakland State of the Address excuse me, Oakland State of the City address, which is at 10, excuse me, oh, I am going so fast. I had coffee maybe like 8 a.m. Now it's 1.20-ish, 1.20-ish p.m., and now I'm feeling the effects. Wow, interesting. Okay. Okay, so this is happening again today, 5 p.m. at the Oakland State of the City address, 1000 Oak Street in Oakland. The city is in a terrible state. The state of the city address is an opportunity for Mayor Schaff, boo, and the city administrators to lie about the horrendous conditions of the people of Oakland. The city of Oakland has invested millions in quote-unquote managing and sweeping homeless people out of the site and done little to provide services, housing, or employment opportunities to the thousands of dispossessed people of Oakland. Conservative estimates put over 4,000 people on the streets of Oakland every night. Actual figures could be twice as high. This does not account for the thousands more that are housing insecure. With the rising cost of housing, many are forced to live in cars, trailers, or with friends and extended family. The situation demands that people take action and organize to end homelessness. The city of Oakland has constantly, excuse me, consistently failed the West Oakland Wood Street community and has instead chosen to collaborate with the surrounding real estate developers that seek to evict the community. Mayor Schaaf's office has collaborated with Fred B. Craves, a San Francisco billionaire, ew, to develop an abandoned lot in West Oakland that sits in the heart of the West Oakland Wood Street community. Craves and the city claim they plan to build a safe parking lot. (sighs) Excuse me. I just rolled my eyes very inside at the same time. Uh, They, okay. They, they claim that they're going to build a safe parking. Safe parking is in quotation marks because we know what that means. Lot on Wood Street. What they leave out is that after the lease expires, which is 18 months after it's finalized, that Craves intends to develop the land at a profit and leave the community with nothing and nowhere to go. Fred Craves, that name, ugh. Fred Craves has even enlisted the legal services of the law offices of Alan Horowitz, um, who affirms that the focuses who focuses on evictions and who describes themselves as the evictors gross and gross. Okay. I maybe I'm just in the PG state of mind right now, but no, Ugh. this is not a struggle just affecting the West Oakland wood street community, the city of Oakland real estate developers and law offices across the city collaborate to displace working people. And it is time to fight back. And they have a few photos here. City officials have invested millions in harassing and stealing from homeless people and very and have done very little to actually help. So again, they've got more information on this. If you go to IndieBay.org, you can also support IndieBay. You can donate 
and get involved. They have a lot of other information there. Follow them on Twitter as well, which is where I found out about this. So again, 5 p.m. today in front of the Oakland Museum of California. Okay. Apparently it's 65 degrees in Antarctica, which is uh, it's a bit high. That's not good. And I'm going to look for ooh, another uh, more audio to share, because I've been doing a lot of talking today. And I did what also share an article from The Guardian. Chuck Sims, Africa Freed, final jailed Move 9 member released from prison. So I didn't hear about the Move bombing until I was maybe in my 20s. It's one of these things where there's so much that happens that's not taught in schools and is purposely not shared. And that's state violence against the people. And so I'm going to read here. This is from The Guardian. Uh, this is written by Ed Pilkington in New York. This was came out today, February 7th. 59-year-old walks free from prison in LaBelle, Pennsylvania. Um, black radicals were held behind bars for more than four decades. <sighs> One of the great open wounds of the black liberation struggle of the 1970s has finally been healed with the release of the last member of the Move 9. The group of radicals rounded up in a Philadelphia police siege in 1978 and held behind bars for more than four decades. Chuck Sims Africa, 59, walked free from the Fayette State Correctional Institution in LaBelle, Pennsylvania on Friday morning. The youngest of the incarcerated group, he had been in custody since shortly before he turned 18. His freedom marked his reunion with his family for the first time in almost 42 years. It was also historic, as it closed a chapter that had remained unfinished since the Black Power movement erupted in the late 1960s. Alongside the Black Panthers, Philadelphia's MOVE organization was central to the volatile and at times violent struggle for black equality that lasted until the late 1980s. Members of the organization regarded themselves, and still do to this day, as part of a family dedicated to race equality, with all members taking the last name Africa. Part Panthers and part eco-hippies, they also had a commitment to environmental justice that was ahead of its time. Mike Africa Jr., the son of two of the Move 9 and Chuck, said Chuck's release put an end to the long and grueling campaign. We will never have to shout, free the Move 9 ever again. It's been 41 years, and now we'll never have to say it. For Mike Africa, who is also Chuck's nephew, the release was especially poignant. He was born in a cell five weeks after his mother, Debbie Sims Africa, Chuck's sister, was rounded up in the 1978 siege and incarcerated. She gave birth to him unbeknown to the prison guards and kept him hidden with her in, her, in the cell for the first few days of his life. The Guardian began investigating the prolonged imprisonment of the Move 9 in 2018 as part of examination into black power behind bars. At the time, all the surviving members of the group were still in custody in various Pennsylvania prisons. Members of the group described in letters, emails, and prison interviews how they had endured so many years inside while keeping their spirits high. Janine Phillips Africa said that she raised therapy dogs in her cell and grew vegetables in the prison yard, avoiding birthdays or holidays that reminded her of the passage of time. The years are not my focus, she wrote in a letter to The Guardian. I keep my mind on my health and the things I need to do day by day. Delbert Orr Africa said, We've suffered the worst that this system can throw at us. Decades of imprisonment, loss of loved ones, 
so we know we are strong. Soon after the Guardian began its investigation, the seven surviving members of the group began to be released on parole. First up was Debbie Sims Africa, set free in June 2018. We are peaceful people. Oh, sorry, my computer just went out. Okay. Um, apologies, it just went out. Um, okay, so when this happens, we are going to take a bit of a break and see if we can bring it up here because we are living in the 2020 where we have cell phones or many of us have phones everywhere. So I'm going to see if I can bring up this article on cell phone and finish reading it and then we'll take a bit of a break. Okay, and just leafing through this so I can find the article. And you can also check out The Guardian, which has a series of articles about other folks who are members of the Move 9. So I'm going to move down along the line. Let's see. Down. Let's see. Okay. Soon after the Guardian began its investigation, the seven surviving members of the group began to be released on parole. First up was Debbie Sims Africa, set free in June 2018. We are peaceful people, she said as she stepped out of Cambridge Springs Prison. Then the other six began to emerge, one after the other, like falling dominoes. Mike Africa Sr. in October 2018, Janine Phillips Africa and Janet Holloway Africa in May of 2019, Eddie Goodman, Africa, in June of 2019. Delbert Orr, Africa, in January of 2020. Chuck Sims, Africa, completes the set. The Move 9 were arrested following a massive police siege of their collective headquarters and home in Powelton Village, Philadelphia, on August 8, 1978. Hundreds of police officers and SWAT teams, armed with machine guns, tear gas, bulldozers, and water cannons, surrounded the property following a long standoff with city authorities that saw the group as a threat to the community. Although, I'm going to just take a break from the article and just say these were folks who were just living their lives and supporting each other. I, I oh, I, oh. The siege culminated in a police shootout in which MOVE members allegedly returned fire, though they denied doing so. A police officer, James Ramp, was killed in the crossfire. Nine members were arrested and held jointly responsible for Ramp's death. <sighs> Despite forensic evidence showing he was killed with a single bullet, in 1980, the nine were convicted of third-degree murder and lesser offenses and each sentenced to 30 years to life. Two of the nine, Merle and Phil Africa, died in prison. The remaining seven fought for many years to convince parole authorities that they were safe to be let out, pointing to clean discipline sheets in prison. Over the past two years, there have been no security incidents relating to any of the paroled individuals. Wilson Good, former mayor of Philadelphia, wrote to the parole board to support Chuck Africa's bid for freedom. He said, his release will reunite a family after 40 years, and I am convinced he will be a positive, contributing voice to the Philadelphia community. Good, the first black mayor of Philadelphia, was in that position on May 13, 1985, when the second disaster relating to MOVE occurred. Following another prolonged bout of acrimony between the organization and its neighbors and city authorities, the decision was taken forcibly to evict the group from its latest headquarters, then in Osage Avenue. Another shootout broke out, and... 
When that failed to flush them out, police dropped incendiary bombs from a helicopter onto the roof of the building. A fire ensued, which was allowed to spread, eventually raising to the ground 61 homes in the overwhelmingly African-American neighborhood. Eleven people in the move house, including five children, died in the inferno. Chuck Africa's cousin Frank was among the adults who were killed. All the paroled members of the Move 9 are now preparing to mark the 35th anniversary of the tragedy. For the first time, they will be able to commemorate the event and the relatives and peers they lost outside a prison cell. And for more information, you can, if you go to theguardian.com, they have articles on many of the other folks as well. All right, I'm going to see if I can bring up some music here on the phone, take a bit of a break, find out how we'll uh, continue here now that the computer's a little bit out of, out of battery here. And I'm going to find some more music by uh, Micaiah McRaven, and who's an instrumentalist. And... Yes, here is, okay, gonna bring it up here, let's see,
Alright, and welcome back. So again, this is uh, Micaiah McCraven, that's spelled M-A-K-A-Y-A, M-C-C-R-A-V-E-N, and this was live set from the Red Bull Studio Sessions, which came out on 19th, 2018. You can find that on YouTube. And I was in the mood for some Howard's set. I often am. And uh, Artists in the Time of War is a album recording that we played before on the show, and it's been a minute, so I thought I would put in some of that. And yeah, I think that's it. Uh, hopefully, I didn't comment too much on Iowa aside from the fact that not all the votes were counted and it took them days. And it's as much as I, especially the you know the presidential election, as much as I recognize how flawed it is and how the system is designed to again protect the status quo as we talked about earlier. There's still I still have a frustration. And even though I understand that elections are rigged, it still is frustrating when uh, votes aren't counted. So let's, uh, without saying too much, let's just hope that uh, all the folks who have been organizing and doing the work, I hope that their uh, their work comes through. All right, so here's Howard's in, Artists in a Time of War. I'm gonna sign off. And thanks again so much for tuning in. Please do support Mutiny Radio. Go to mutinyradio.fm. Also, if you want to donate to the show, we have a Patreon set up, patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. If you're able to donate a little bit here and there, or feel free to Venmo me, Venmo Roman dash Reimer, I think it is. Wow, that sounded really very confident. Yeah, follow me on Twitter and get in touch with me that way, at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. And I hope everyone has a great weekend, and we'll be back, not next week, but the week after. So have a great week, everybody. About this topic, I won't say I've never talked, <laughs> but I've never talked about this topic, you know, the art and society. Of course, I've thought about it. My wife is a painter. I have artist friends. Some of my best friends <laughs> are artists. <laughs> Some of them are here, observing me. Uh, but as I say, yeah, I, I've th thought about it. Of course, all of us have. And, uh, and what comes to mind when I think of the, you know, the relationship of the artist to society, what should be the relationship of the artist to society, and with me it's always a question of what should be and not what is. But I think of the word transcendent, which is a word I've never used in public. <laughs> But it was the only thing I could come up with to describe uh, what I think about the role of the artist. And by that I mean, you know, not, you know, Immanuel Kant's, well, yes, sort of close to it, but not really <laughs> his idea of what is transcendent, something like it. But the, the idea is that the artist transcends the immediate, uh, transcends the here and now. The artist well, transcends the madness of the world, transcends the madness of terrorism, transcends the madness of war. And uh, the artist thinks outside the framework and acts and paints and does music and writes outside the framework that society has, has created. And, and the artist may do 
no more than, and I don't mean to minimize it by saying no more than, the artist may do more than, you know, give us uh, beauty and laughter, uh, passion, surprise, drama. And that's, that's good. Uh, that is, the artist needn't apologize for just doing that, because in doing that, the, the artist is telling us what the world should be like, even if it isn't that way now. And the artist is, is taking us away from the moments of horror that we experience every day in this world, some days more than others, and, and showing us something else, showing us what is possible. There's no need for an artist to apologize about just giving us something that is passionate and beautiful and funny or any of those. No, no need to apologize for that. But there is more. As the artist can do more, yes, should, should do more. Not only that, but more. Because the artist is also a citizen, the artist is a human being. I mean, I face that in a different way, in that uh, if I'm, if I can be classified, well, yeah, the, the society classifies me. I'm a historian. That scares me. <laughs> to be classified, I'm a historian. But I don't want to be just a historian. And, but the, the society uh, disciplines us. It puts us into a discipline. You're a historian. You're a businessman. You're an engineer. You're a this. You're a that. And the first thing somebody asks you at a cocktail party is, what do you do? <laughs> Which means, uh, you know, what, what is your profession? What is your, you know, how are you categorized? And the problem is that people begin to think that that's what they are and that's all they are, that they're professionals in something. And you hear the word professionalism being used, and people say, you've got to be professional. Whenever you hear the word, I get a little scared, because uh, that limits human beings to working within the limits set by this you know, profession. As a historian, I, I would face this, and there would be, during the Vietnam War, there would be meetings of, of historians. Uh, can you imagine what a wonderful feeling that is? To be among 2,000 historians at a meeting. Uh, and, uh, and I remember during the Vietnam War, this question was, at one of our great meetings of historians, the war was raging in Southeast Asia, and the question was, should historians take a stand on the war? And there was a big debate on this. Really, there was a big debate on this. And uh, some of us you know, introduced a resolution saying, you know, we historians think the United States should get out of Vietnam. Simple little thing. And then there were others who said, no. Uh, it's, not, it's not that we don't think the United States should stay in Vietnam. It's not that at all. It's just that we're historians. It's not our business. Hey, whose business is it? 
So the historian says it's not my business, and the businessman says it's not my business, and the lawyer says it's not my business, and you know, the artist says it's not my business, and whose business is it? You mean we're going to leave the business of the most important issues in the world to the people who run the country? <laughs> I mean, how stupid can you be? <laughs> I mean, haven't we had enough experience historically with leaving the important decisions to the people in the White House or the people in Congress or the people in the Supreme Court or the people who dominate the economy? We've had lots of experience leaving the important decisions to them because the citizen doesn't know he's a citizen. He thinks he's only a doctor or a lawyer or a historian or an artist or whatever. But back in the 18th century, Rousseau said, you know, I see all sorts of people who are doing this and doing that and doing this and doing that, but where are the citizens among us? You know, everybody, everybody must be involved. There are no experts. Well, there are. I remember during the Vietnam War, I keep going back because that's, you know. There are certain historical moments when learning is more intense than at any other period. I mean, this is one of those moments, too, right now, after September 11th. But Vietnam was one of those moments when learning is compressed uh, into a short span of time and place. And one of the things we learned about during those years was about experts and about when the war started and people would ask questions, why are we there? <laughs> they said, listen to the experts. The experts would get on television and tell us why we're there. And I remember the British actor, an artist, right? Actors are artists. Uh, the British actor, Peter Ustinov, spoke out against the war in Vietnam. And then somebody said, Ustinov, he's an actor. <laughs> he's not an expert. And Ustinov replied, there are experts in little things. But there are no experts in big things. There are experts in this fact and that fact and that fact, but there are no moral experts. It's important to remember that, that all of us, whatever we do, have the right to make moral decisions about the world and undeterred by the cries that will come up, oh, you, you don't know, you're not an expert. These people up there, they know. Well takes only a little bit of history to realize how dangerous it is to think that the people who run the country know what they're doing. So the word transcendent comes to mind when I think of the role of the artist in dealing with the issues of the day. And, and I use the word transcendent to suggest that the role of the artist is to transcend the given wisdom, to transcend the word of the establishment, to transcend the orthodoxy, to transcend, uh, to go beyond, to escape uh, what is handed down by the government 
or what is said in the press or what is said on television. These things just took over me. Just took over my whole body. It's your boy Sifo here, here to let you know that the fifth annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival is March 1st through 7th. 2020 with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all comedians with so much potential and so many drug problems makes me as giddy as a schoolgirl. I haven't had so much fun and giggles since my non-trinary youth at Bumble's warning school in East Brackenshire. Reconversion to peace Ukraine was not easy. We had a surplus of Sherman tanks, B-17s, K rations, generals, and olive drab material. We had an acute shortage of trains to bring the boys home. A shortage of new cars, washing machines, white shirts, and a worldwide shortage of competent men for the peace table. We also had a nervous ally in Moscow. While the London Foreign Minister's conference was a failure, Molotov pointed out that the Allies had differences during the war, and always... Flub like plastic, mutiny radio data firm. solution in the end. This was the most hopeful note he struck. Russia believes she did Cruella most of the war. Cruella de Vil, if she doesn't scare you, no evil thing will. To see her is to take a sudden chill. Cruella, Cruella de Vil. The curl of her lips, the ice in her stare. All innocent children had better beware. She's like a spider waiting for the kill. Look out for Cruella DeVille. At first you think Cruella is a devil. But after time has wore away the shock. You come to realize you've seen her kind of eyes watching you from underneath a rock. This vampire bat, this inhuman beast, she ought to be locked up but never released. The world was such a wholesome place until Cruella, Cruella de Vil. Oh, Cruella, Cruella, Cruella de Vil. Cruella, Cruella, Cruella de Vil.
go get some more loot. But me, as a kid, I heard banjos and guitar strummers roaming the streets at night. Police authorities and my mother and old folks used to call them midnight disturbers because they would walk the street talking about their lost love. Some girl and put them down singing the Yamacraw blues. And I heard this music.
So fine, you don't need sugar to make you shine. Just as you are, be like you alive. Keep your spoon out of the honey pot. Sweet stuff, you got enough. You don't need any sugar, sugar. Everything plain will taste just right without a bite of sugar. You're so likable. Three o'clock in the morning, and it looks as though it's gonna be another sleepless night. I've been listening to your dreams and getting very low. Wondering. Little long playing record, and I'm your Disneyland story. Lucky in front of the television watching his favorite.
Classic Muni Radio.fm, brothers and sisters. It's time for you to kick out the jams with your money because we need it. We know you got it. And we're earning it, brothers and sisters.
Stop. 
to tongue-tied knots. My head is spinning, but I can't get enough. You're the feeling, oh yeah, the bumblebee, oh yeah. 